Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tip scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now let's talk about family. That word can mean different things to different people. While media outlets from TV shows to movies to the press are becoming better at highlighting different types of families, the traditional mom, dad, kid family still seems to be the default. Even when watching animated children's movies where one parent dies before the adventure begins, the implied family structure typically starts as a mom, dad, and child. This sends a message about what is supposedly normal. And with children naturally wired to want to belong, perceiving your family as different can make a child feel less than. Let's aim to change this by being more inclusive in our conversations and explanations of what alternative families look like. We have spoken in the past about blended families and some about adoption. And today I'd like to go deeper into adoption as well as some other family structures like gay and lesbian parenting with someone who has been studying diversity in families for quite a while, Dr. Abby Goldberg. Abby E. Goldberg is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, where she also currently serves as the Director of Women and Gender Studies and is the current holder of the Jan and Larry Landry Endowed Chair. Dr. Goldberg is an internationally recognized scholar, speaker, and consultant who is regularly interviewed by media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, the Boston Globe, the New York Magazine. Her research examines diverse families, including LGBTQ parent families and adoptive parent families, as well as the experiences of marginalized groups such as trans youth. A central theme of her research is the decentering of any quote-unquote normal or quote-unquote typical family, sexuality, or gender to allow room for diverse family sexualities and genders. Dr. Goldberg is the author of 140 peer-reviewed articles, over 25 book chapters, and four books, LGBTQ Family Building, A Guide for Prospective Parents, Open Adoption and Diverse Families, Gay Dads, Lesbian and Gay Parents and Their Children, her research has been cited worldwide, and she teaches courses on diversity in contemporary families, research methods with diverse families, human sexuality, the psychology of sexual orientation, gender and crime, and ethics in clinical psychology. We are so excited to have you. Welcome, Professor Abby Goldberg, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here, but before we jump into everything, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in studying different types of families from families created through adoption to two mom or two dad families? 
Yes. Um, so I started graduate school, this is the very short version, um, and in the late 90s, and really was struck by how the research on families was really about a mom and a dad with biologically related kids. And I was studying the transition of parenthood. What happens when folks become parents for the first time? And everything that I read was really about folks who were having biological children in the context of a heterosexual relationship, which really struck me. Um, so I started my sort of my first big study, which was the transition to parenthood for lesbian couples. So these were female couples who used donor insemination to become parents. Because what I knew from my own family and from my friends is that families are really diverse and that the research just didn't catch up with the lived reality of families that I experienced in my everyday life. So I wanted to start changing that. And that really was the beginning of kind of a whole career of looking at different kinds of families with all different kinds of permutations and combinations. And you know, one question led to another question, which led to another question. It's so interesting, um, I, and I agree with you. I actually, I was at school at the same time as you were um, when I was getting my PhD at Tufts University and studying families through the lens of children's literature at that time and looking at how things changed in children's literature, were there books that were starting to reflect different types of families? We probably all remember the Heather has two mommies and it wasn't a mom dad situation. We also had like a single parent and it started to show it, but it really took a long time to re reflected. So why would you say the traditional family is said to be made up of mom, dad, child as the default? Is it census figures on um, that report that this the percentage of families is comprised that way? Is it the majority? Is it the default because that's the way it's always been? What What is the reason for the traditional family to be called the traditional family when we know there's so many different kinds? Well, it's not census figures because we know that it is not really the dominant family form. We've got divorced families and we've got adoptive families and two mom families and grandparents raising children and so many other combinations, single parents. Um, so we have to look deeper and think about, you know, there's, there's an element of family values here. What do, who do we think is the ideal and so I don't think that most people would say, you know, a mom and dad and two kids is the, by, you know, by and large, the most common type of family, although some people would, but we might say that's the ideal kind of family. That's the kind of family that everyone should aspire to. Um, it's the healthiest kind of family. Um, it's the kind of family that we've seen represented again and again throughout history. There's some nostalgia and idealization attached to that kind of family, even if what's going on in that family, right, whoever they are, isn't necessarily that happy or healthy, right? Um, so we, we've kind of clung to that idea that this, is, this represents the ideal, um, even though we see perfectly healthy and happy representations of diverse families all around us. So are you saying then that the assumption that heterosexual couples raising children, that that is the healthiest way to raise children is not actually accurate? 
Yes, I am. Um, we know that um, in academic speak, family structure, so who makes up a family, is less important than what we call family process, what happens within families. So family process is just more important. And really what's interesting is that family process can look really similar across all different kinds of or different structures of family. So what actually happens within families matters more to kids' development, for example, than whether you have a mom and a dad, right? Are, the, are your parents warm and supportive and do you have people that you can count on? Can you trust your parents? Um, do you have a sense of safety, right? Are these good relationships? That matters more than if you have a mom and a dad. Mm. Thank you. That is really illuminating. And I feel like really gets at the point and, and the crux of the matter. Now you study families that were created through adoption. Ours, you know, obviously having a couple, of course, is also a family. I mean, creating a family with kids. We adopted both of our children. So we embody that structure. And in general, I would like to know what were some of the most profound findings that you discovered while studying families that created their structure with kids through adoption? Well, um, I guess one of the most profound things, I should say that I've been following uh, over 150 lesbian, gay, and heterosexual adoptive families for almost 17 years. Wow. So I've got, I know. It started out That's as a awesome. study to, to look at their transition to parenthood, and then it just became a study of their transition to kindergarten, and a study of their transition to elementary school, and then it became a divorce study because certain people got divorced. And so I'm interested in family transitions and what helps people to thrive when things are changing and how can we support families when things are, when they're not thriving. So surprise, surprise, things change. That really is the name of the game. Um, one of the most interesting things is that um, many of these families are in what we call open adoptions where they have some amount of contact with, right? Uh, with birth family. And what I can say about that is just change the name of the game. There are folks that were not super, super on board or maybe not quite as open to open adoption early on, but they really got as their kids started to develop how important that was for their children. And they surprised themselves. And I think sometimes me uh, with their expansive view of what families could be and their willingness and ability to integrate birth family, even when it was really hard, because these aren't stories where it's just, you know, everything's easy. You know, when we have multiple people involved, things are complicated. So I guess I've just been surprised and engaged with how much these relationships have changed over time. Um, and families' willingness to do things that maybe are hard for parents, but really they believe are good for their kids. It's fascinating to me on, on every level, professional level and, as, and personal level um, in terms of, of me living that very much. One of the discoveries that has been made over and over again in adoption research is that kids need an origin story to understand where they came from and who they are. I would love for you to talk about some of these details we're supposed to be providing in an origin story. For example, what is an origin story? 
when does it start? How far back should we kind of be going with it? Um, for people who are talking about an adoption story or an origin story with their children so that they get really what they need in order to thrive and, and be really healthy kids? Those are great questions. I think that a lot of, um, I will not put this on adoptive parents because I think a lot of the advice has come from agencies and other folks to tell origin stories that are really happy. And I'm not saying yes, you should tell right. an origin story that is upbeat and positive, but we have to really be careful with kids not to lie. And so sometimes I hear origin stories that sound, they sound close to lying to me. Um, and that, that's not great because at some point, you're going to give a more nuanced, complicated narrative or origin story. And it can't be so different from that original origin story that the kid says, well, wait, what about the part where they loved me so much that they placed me for adoption? Or what about, you know, um, you know, my, my, my birth parents are, um, you know, you, you know, heroes or your heroes, right? So we, we build up these kind of ideals and these ideas for kids that are very, um, they're not always, they don't always approximate the real conditions. So I think there's a way in which you can tell an origin story that is truthful, but that's nuanced and that is upbeat, you know, to the extent that it can be. So emphasizing how all the people involved really loved you. That's true. And that's not going to change, but saying they loved you so much that they placed you for adoption for a lot of folks, there's not that's not totally true. A birth parent placed the child for adoption, maybe because they had very few resources in their life that would allow them to keep that child. That's a fact. It's a painful fact, but it's a fact. So telling the child, you know, she wanted you to be with us because she wanted a better life for you. That's a, that's a tricky. Um, and, and many people would say not a, a truthful narrative. Um, and it's, it's one that will probably over time be challenged. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine lived the, the issue that you just highlighted, um, admitting now that she wound up making a mistake and wish she had done it differently, but with the greatest of intentions, because the story that she would have needed to tell her child who was asking was extremely unpleasant um, and happened to be placed for adoption out of safety for her and for her siblings who remained with the mother uh, because the birth father, who was the birth father just to this particular baby and not the others, was being abusive, sexually abusive to those other children and would have had a reason, a legal reason, to be able to hang around that house had the birth mother kept that child. Now, they have an open adoption, and they have kept in touch um, with the birth mother and the siblings, and it is a very lovely family structure. However, uh, my friend has said, had she done it again, she would have liked to have said something like, you were placed for adoption because they wanted to keep you safe. And then once she was old enough, 
would have been able to detail that if the child said, what do you mean they needed to keep me safe to be able to say, well, this person didn't have understand body boundaries and go into more detail as needed. So when she did finally get in, get into it, it became so shocking that before that, the, the child kept thinking that they placed for adoption because she wasn't good enough. They, they kept the other children. So in her head, they gave me up. They, they, you know, they didn't want me. So she made up another story, which is one of the, the, the problems that we wind up having if we don't tell the origin story or if we circumvent the details. Isn't that true? Very much. And I, again, I would put the center of that story even more so than they wanted to keep you safe. Your safety was the priority. So even changing that little bit of language mm. around, Love you know, it. the system wanted to keep you safe or, you know, these people, rather it was your safety because that empowers the child to feel like they were, you know, at the center mm. um, and that that was a real, that was a priority. And I think so many children who find out that their birth parents have other children do take that on and say, you know, well, they kept these other children, what was so terrible about me. Mm -hmm. And again, the little tweaks in language that we can make about um, your, your birth mother couldn't, couldn't take care of you at that time, couldn't take on another child at that time, being really specific around the circumstances that led to that placement. So um, it's because it's a lie to say your, your birth parents couldn't take care of children. Right. Mm -hmm. They had two other children. So how does then the person, the child internalize that? So rather it's, you know, they couldn't take care of you at that time um, or, or it was it was really challenging at that time. Okay. Excellent. That, that scripting is really, really important. And I, I really understand that. So I would love to go further and talk a little bit more about scripting of how we would broach an origin story and explain an origin story. If let's say, for example, the, that, you know, a lot more about the birth mother, but you actually don't know anything about the birth father. How, how would you deal with that that situation, wanting to give an origin story to this child, but not really having a balanced view of what it is? I would probably say that, you know, we know a lot more about your birth mom than your birth dad. You know, we don't know a lot. Mm -hmm. And as you get, as the child gets older, um, there's usually, you know, usually parents can, can assure their child you know, that they will access more information as their child might want that or need that. And if it is accessible now, adoptive parents may have knowledge that the birth of the birth father in ways that is not, they don't feel is positive, but ultimately, you know, let's say I'm saying, let's say that the birth father is um, incarcerated, for mm -hmm. example, um, that's actually information that, again, as developmentally appropriate, a child should have access to as they grow. Um, the kind of working knowledge is that you you work with a child's um, developmental stage as you share information. And again, you want to make sure that you're never changing the story. You're only allowing the story to become more nuanced um, and process those details with that child. So initially, it might be we don't know a lot about the birth father. I'm assuming that's true. 
and then it may graduate to we don't know we don't know a lot but you know we have these details and if you're curious about more we could we can try to find out more or we can try to get in contact and then it might be you know we we now learn that your your birth father's incarcerated um he's in jail would what would you like to do would you like to write him a letter mm-hmm. um there may be something about that that could be really positive for a child of course you want to make sure you want to be monitoring the child for how are they experiencing this um ideally you have access to adoption uh aware or adoption sensitive therapists who might be brought in to kind of support that process Um, but the working idea is that by the time a child is a teenager they really do have access to all information about their origins. Okay. And then what about the parents? And I have a lot of friends in this situation that they know very little at all because the children were adopted internationally and they just were not given mm-hmm. information. They didn't have it. It's they, they, I think the adoption centers and the orphanages and that, they didn't have the information. So what do you do in the situation where you really don't know? Well, first of all, I think it's so important to validate for the child how painful and frustrating that is. The loss of that information is profound. And as adoptive parents, we are, or they are sort of, um, part of that system, right? Like, you know, you know, adoptive parents take on that reality and have to grapple with how, you know, how to manage it, right? Parents have to figure out what they're going to do with that. So I think first validating that, and then, you know, there are all of these new ways that people are seeking out information. Um, it may not be about say birth parents, or origins, but many internationally adopted kids, um, when they get to young adulthood, they really want to do genealogy and they want to do 23andMe. And and that can be a way in to at least having access to some information about identity, right? Mm -hmm. Who am I? Who are we? And to be able to access that, you know, of course, it's not the same thing as knowing who your birth parents are, but it's something. And so mm-hmm. adoptive parents should really support that process. People are also employing these kind of detectives, um, both overseas and then people who they can find online to find out information about origins, you know, who, for kids who were internationally adopted. And some people have had success. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are parents who have accessed things, you know, that they've said like, all right, let's go to China and look at your home country. And we know you're from this area. So let's, you know, investigate this particular area and let's learn some of the language and let's learn some of the traditions. So I know that some adoptive parents are are trying to access some of the origin and by incorporating some of the traditions and language from that place of origin is is that also a way to to get at a little piece of this for these for these kids? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly returning to that country as a family, right, and not just sort of sending the child or, you know, and, and part of it could be this sort of fact-finding mission, like find, trying to find out more about, you know, going back to the orphanage and trying to find out more information. Some of the people use it as sort of a, um, a little bit of a, an excursion to try to gather more information. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it, it's both a cultural kind of um, immersion, but it's also a fact-finding mission because they may be doing that work with their children um, or maybe alone. So all of that is great. I think the key thing is that parents need to recognize that they are now part of a multicultural, multi, often multiracial, multilingual family that this isn't their, just their child's identity. Um, you know, sending your child off to, you know, a culture camp or sending your child off to this other country, but rather this is, you know, you've taken this on as well Mm -hmm. and doing things that you, where you might feel like the outsider, that's good, right? You know, parents should challenge themselves to realize usually what their child experiences all the time, which is being of a different, you know, background, uh, being phenotypically dissimilar from family members, looking different, being the only person of color, say in a group. Um, Parents owe it to their kids to look for opportunities where they're the ones who look different and feel different, Mm -hmm. whether that's in another country or whether that's at a church or whether that's in a neighborhood or at school or whatever. I, I love that. It, it just flipped it on its ear for me where, you know, when a, when a child comes to you and wants to know your background and your genealogy and, and there's, and, and you say, oh, well, my dad would, you know, my dad's family was from Prague and my mother's family was from an area in Russia. And, and that you could say, this is part of your heritage now and your origin, your place of origin is also part of our heritage now. I love that it goes both ways because I don't think that many people think about it, about it that way. So I think that's really, really genius. It, it adds an extra layer, this idea that you have a family that has different races in it. And, and for those children who were, Uh, adopted, it needs to be integrated and combined and celebrated in order for children to thrive. And it's, it's such a good way of doing that. I really appreciate what you're saying there. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just more about like taking it on as a responsibility. And I think a lot of times, especially with transracially adoptive, you know, you know, parents and families, um, there is not as much attention to, you know, what would it be like for me to be uncomfortable, you know, rather than keeping, you know, asking my child to adapt to say a primarily white school, you know, what would it be like for me to live in a predominantly, you know, black community or go to this church that, you know, is predominantly black where I'm one Mm -hmm. of the few white parents. Mm -hmm. So again, Mm -hmm. leaning in or, or interrogating that discomfort, um, what is, what is going to work for my child? Um, Mm -hmm. To, yeah. to, you know, be at the center and, you know, being uncomfortable can be really good for yeah. us. What a, what a growth opportunity. Finally, with the scripting, would if the birth parents have negative things that are, 
that were the reason why this child was placed for adoption, like the abuse situation or neglect. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, the, the orphanages and the adoption community often says that we need to be positive about birth parents for the health of the child. What kind of things can we say to that child about their origin if things started off really poorly for them and, and still want that child to thrive in knowing their story? Yeah, I think it's so important. You know, here is where like being really careful with language is so important um, because, you, you know, again, there's real danger in, in saying, you know, your birth parents were bad people. Right. They hurt you. We don't want to say that for a variety of reasons. One of which is, first of all, that's probably, you know, it's, it's not true. It's, it's too simplistic. And the child internalizes that as part of their story. Right. If my birth dad was a bad person, what does that mean about me? Um, boys in particular, if you, you know, people tend to identify overly with the same gender parents. So if you say your birth father was a criminal and he's in jail, you know, think about how a child is going to interpret that and experience that as what it says about them. So there's ways in which you can talk about, you know, you know, let's say there's a parent who was neglectful or abuse, and those are two very different things, I will say, Um, you know, talking about trying not to get into personal qualities um, and the blame game, maybe talk more about systems um, and again about safety. So talking about, um, you know, your, your birth mom had a really hard time because often when we see things like abuse or neglect, um, we're also talking about systemic issues. We're talking about poverty. We're talking about systems that, that, that failed folks. We're talking about mental illness. So, you know, your birth, birth mom had a really hard time. Um, you know, they didn't have the support that they needed to be able to parent you in the way um, that they wanted to or they needed to. And again, that can change as the child gets older to say, you know, eventually your birth mom had a diagnosis of X. This Mm -hmm. meant that there were these behaviors which made it hard to parent, right? So you get more specific, but it's really important to remember that this child is of those birth parents. So anything you say, that child can and will internalize as part of themselves. Thank you. That is important for us to know that we're dealing with nuanced humans and not somebody who you never want one label to be slapped on your head. So we wouldn't want to do the same thing to others. Now, you also study uh, gay and lesbian parenting, and the past several decades have seen increasing controversies over lesbian and gay parenthood. At the same time, more same-sex couples than ever are becoming parents. Can you talk about some of the top struggles that might be unique to these two-mom or two-dad households for the parents and for the kids? Yes, and I will say, you know, things have really changed uh, in, in, in different ways, right? Things have gotten increasingly more positive in many ways, right? There's been some real um, wins in terms of family recognition, yes. but especially depending on where you live, the rights of you know LGBT parents are often challenged. 
Um, so, and I have a, a book that's coming out this spring that's really a guide to folks who want to be parents who are LGBT to kind of anticipate those earlier. So it really gets at these, you know, what are, what are the things that you need to think about? So, I mean, first of all, so much, so much about sort of what is challenging depends on where you live. You know, if you live in a community that is supportive and affirming, um, that where there's a lot of other LGBT parent families, um, you know, you're going to have a really different experience than you're living in, say, a red state where there are your, your child is the only child with two dads, right? Um, so that really matters. One other thing that matters is how much money do you have? How much money do you have to opt in of, of cert, opt into certain environments? Say, place your child in private school if you feel like the public school is not a good fit or um, you know, you know, choose where you live, maybe choosing to live in a more progressive community. Can you do you have much choice about where you land? Um, so those things really matter. Mm-hmm. And of course, families will often have a harder time if they are dealing with other marginalized identities, you know, if they're parents or children of color, um, if there's also other issues, disabilities. But the biggest challenges folks face is, you know, not understanding their families, right? The idea that their children and they are somehow less than because they're they're gay. So kids may be teased. Um, they may be told, for example, you don't have a dad. You know, you, you know, you don't have a dad. You're you're not part of a real family. Or, um, you know, two women can't get married. Or my grandparents say dot dot dot. Those are some of the things that children, at least, um, might encounter in the early years. And so in order for us and the people who are listening to this podcast, who are people who want to talk to their kids about all different tough topics, if we want to create a more understanding world for diverse families like the gay and lesbian parents you've studied, um, how might uh, uh, those who are listening, uh, who have maybe a more traditional the mom, dad household, or a single parent household, talk to their kids about two mom or two dad households. If their if their child is asking something like, why does Josie have two mommies? Or why do I have two daddies instead of a mom and a dad? Or those kinds of questions. How can we talk to kids about that so that they're more understanding and less likely to be the ones who are teasing and making people feel inferior? So two things, one is to kind of re-emphasize for kids how diverse families are to begin with, right? Highlight for them that that two dad family is actually just one of a whole range of different kinds of families that exist, right? So yeah, some people have two dads, some people live with a grandparent who really loves them and takes care of them. Some people are raised by a single mom or a single dad. Some people have, you know, three parents. Maybe they have divorced parents and one of them is remarried, right? Helping kids to know that yeah, this is this is part of a spectrum of different kinds of families. And then really emphasizing that piece about process versus structure. So mm. well, families are really defined by who's who loves you and who, you know, who you spend time with, not you know, the gender of, of parents. So getting them to understand what makes a family. Well, you know, this is what makes a family. You know, families are people who do things together and families are people who care about each other and families 
one could argue against this, are people who live together, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to help kids to expand their idea of what it is a family to think about what families are to each other, what actually defines people as being family. And if the conversation goes deeper and the child asks something like, how do two dad families or two mom families have kids? How would you answer that question? I would say, you know, some families have to count on other people um, outside of the family to help them make a family. And you could then go deeper into that and you could Mm -hmm. talk about adoption, right? There are these other people um, and you could talk about sperm donation, right? And you could get into, there's some great books that help kids to understand um, some of some of those issues. So Corey Silver, Silverberg has a couple of children's books that talk about donor insemination, for example, and there's a range of adoption books that talk about birth parents, but helping them to understand that sometimes families need a little help um, from people outside of the family to have a child or that, you know, to kind of expand the way that, that, that kids are thinking a little bit. Excellent. Okay. So that, that's really helpful. It's funny. I had like kind of the inverse situation with my children who were adopted and we wound up getting into the sex conversation after my daughter was like, and so when I want to have a child, I will, I go to the doctor and, you know, (laughs) and have the doctor help me or will I adopt? And I was like, wait a second, you don't, you actually are aware of what, what a lot of people do. Um, And, and, you know, when she was much younger, we had quite the conversation that went on a long time. One of my favorite conversations we ever had uncomfortable, but really amazing. But it was funny. Like they, (laughs) she had a different, idea of how this worked and how people created families. You could certainly start with that. You could certainly could say many people start this way and here's some other ways. And that's fine. It really depends on how old the kid is, how much can they really understand about how people often have children. Um, But actually a lot of adopted kids are really first, just to your point, introduced to the idea of sex when they start saying, wait a second, Okay, I know how I got here, but they actually don't have much of an understanding how most other kids got here. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So we wound up having the inverse, but, uh, and it was great. It was a great conversation, but it's interesting because usually people think they're starting with, they have to start with one to get to the other. They know you can start wherever you want there, especially since all of these different ways of forming a family are great fine, you know, just ways. They know one is not better than the other. Okay. So can you give us your top tip? What would you want people to come away with after listening to what you have to say and reading your books or your studies about diverse families and how we should be talking to kids about them? I think we want to help kids understand not just, you know, that there are a whole range of different families, um, But again, broaden their idea even further um, to understand that, you know, we don't know anything about how kids are going to grow up. We don't know if our kids will adopt, if our kids will be gay. We don't know if our kids will um, decide they don't want children, right? So it's part of it is saying, you know, be kind, accept, empathize, be respectful to other families. Don't judge other families. But part of it is also anticipating what children might ultimately um, 
you know, the range of possibilities that kids can imagine for themselves. We don't want kids to foreclose any possibilities for themselves. So when we reinforce the idea of a particular kind of family that is, is valid, you know, we're not only shaping how they treat other people, we're shaping what they can imagine um, for their own futures and their own lives. Well said. I, and I think that's a great way of putting it. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your books, and the work you're doing? Sure. So my research website, um, where you can find all of my articles and books, is abbygoldberg.com. And I also created a website called teachallfamilies.com that is specifically for educators and parents about how to actually create more inclusive learning environments for LGBT parent families and also adoptive parent families. Excellent. And all of those links will be put in the show notes for any of you who are running around right now. And I just want to thank you so much, Professor Abby Goldberg, for being on the show today. I think we all learned a lot about all different types of families and, and really understanding how to talk to kids uh, so that they have a full understanding of, of the range of families that are out there and the range of families that they could have when they grow up. So thanks for, again for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's go up to Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com. I'm at Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And if you love this podcast like I did, what is so interesting, I hope you will go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about these outstanding solutions and use them in their own homes that they could have these conversations it's about adoption, about LGBT. TPQ, parenting, all the different things um, that Abby Goldberg was talking about. I'd really appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please go to drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this, you're here, you're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is often the ultimate do-over. So if you said something about another family, about the way you answered a question, you go, oh, I didn't do that right. You often have another chance to do it again and you can ask for another chance to do it again. I'm right there with you and I see you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.